All sorts of voices you hear up here. There's a silky smooth voice of Pastor Andy Lancaster. There's a theological repertoire of Steve Riley. <laughs> then there's Andy. I've asked the uh, sound people to put me a very deep, broad Yorkshire voice on. Is it working? Good. Good. It's nice to be here. Uh, I want to tell a story. I want to illustrate my story. There'll be about 20 people in all you, hundreds of people here that have heard my story before and even seen the illustrations. So um, bear with me again. It's good to hear again. Anybody listening on podcast or CD, should it ever get that far, won't have the foggiest idea what I'm doing up here with the illustrations. <clears throat> One of the stories I used to like to tell, a Bible story, when I did many, many children's assemblies, infant school assemblies, um, I want to share with you this morning, but you need to be part of that congregation, uh, like children really, you know, and just a bit of congregation participation, if you would. Is that okay? Thank you. Is it okay? Yes. Right. Um, Sarah, last week, was trying to promote different types of um, creative arts that she would like to develop in the church, whether it was drama or poetry or puppets or anything like that. So this is my, this is my contribution this morning, Sarah, to creative communication. This is my friend, Skinny Jim. Would you like to say good morning, Skinny Jim? <laughs> I need to tell you about Skinny Jim. Um, he couldn't attend the Hebrew school sports days. Or participate in them, rather. He couldn't climb the vineyards of the day or run on the walls. He couldn't chase girls. Because Skinny Jim's legs didn't work. Skinny Jim spent most of his life on a bed. Not like this, but like that. Put your hand up if you've got a bed like that. I don't mean a piece of cardboard. I mean that sort of shape, okay? But yeah, come on, put your hand up if you've got a bed like that. Who's got a bed like that? Who sleeps on mats? Well, where he lived, they slept on beds like this. Another question, put your hand up if you've got a good friend, a good friend, one good friend, just hands, hands down, two good friends, there's a few less there, three good friends, even less, what a miserable bunch of people, <laughs> you need to go make friends, join a club, join a sports club, go to bingo, do something, four good friends, anybody, <laughs> that's desperate. Skinny Jim, who lived most of his life on a bed, not like this, but like that, didn't just have one good friend. <laughs> he didn't just have two good friends. He didn't just have three good friends. Skinny Jim, who lived most of his life on a bed, not like this, but like that, had four really cool friends. That's not it. That's not it. It gets worse. One day, Skinny Jim, who lived most of his life on a bed, not like this, but like that, heard of a, a guy coming to a village down the road. A very special guy. He'd heard a lot about him. Some incredible things about him. And he wanted to go see him. But remember, Skinny Jim's legs didn't work. That's why he spent most of his life on a bed. Not like this, but like that. And so, Jim asked his four friends if they'd carry him on his bed. Not like this, but like that. Down to the next village. The four friends of Skinny Jim were good friends. And they agreed to carry him on his bed. Not like this, but like that. To the other village. And so they did. They went on the bumpy road. <laughs> Until they came to a roof. A house, sorry, with a roof. Not like this, but like that. Who's got a roof like that? Who's got a roof like that? Who's got both? Because that's where the money is. The extension, Shadwell, Carvely. 
Where was it? Anyway, the four friends of Skinny Jim, who lived most of his life on a bed, not like this, but like that. When they reached the house with the roof, not like this, but like that, they were absolutely gobsmacked. They couldn't even get near the door. It was packed out with people trying to get in. They went round to the side of the house and looked in the window. Absolutely chock-a-block full of people. And so the four friends of Skinny Jim, who lived most of his life on a bed, not like this, but like that, had to think hard. What should we do? One of them had this idea. We'll carry Jim on his bed, not like, you can say it with me if you want, not like this, but like that. (laughs) Up the steps, onto the roof, not like this, but like that. That's exactly what they did. The four friends of Skinny Jim, who lived most of his life on a bed, not like this, but like that, went up the steps onto the roof, not like this, but like that. Once up there, they began to knock a hole in the roof. And there was a hole. Karen tells me for doing that because I've got such a big nose, it doesn't look good. <laughs> and the four friends of Skinny Jim, who lived most of his life on a bed, not like this, but like that, lowered Jim on his bed, down in front of an amazed crowd, and right in front of the speaker who had come, that everybody had flocked to hear. His name was Jesus, of course. And Jesus looked at the man on his mat, and he looked up at his four faithful friends who had lowered him, through the hole in the roof and he looked at the crowd of people that were listening intently to what he was to say and he said two amazing things to the man on the mat the first thing he said was anything you've ever done or said or thought wrong any sins in your life I now forgive them and then he said something equally as amazing now Jim I want you to take well he won't call Jim up please I want you to take up your bed and fold it up put it under your arm and walk out and go home. To which he did, to the rapturous applause of everybody there. <laughs> Time doesn't permit me to actually read the proper account of what happened. You can read it for yourself in Mark chapter 2. During the 1950s to the 1970s, there was a product advertised on national televisions. It was advertised in most national newspapers. You would see it displayed on large city billboards, on the side of buses and trains and tube stations. In fact, this product became so popular in 1971, it even had a hit single in the charts. Apart from those that were here in the first service, any idea from anybody? I'll tell you the name of the song. I'd like to teach the world to sing. Any idea of the product? Coca-Cola, that's right. And so I want to use this Coca-Cola can um, to illustrate my story of faith, which is an incredible story, and I'd like to share it with you again. I worked for Coca-Cola in 1982 in Putsey on the trading estate there, just for a a few months, and uh, it is the real thing. That was its strapline. It was was real for cleaning rings and coins (laughs) and keys. We used to just clean all of our uh, things there in the... uh, the syrup room at Coca-Cola. It reminds me um, when you get to sort of my age, when most of your sentences begin with, I remember when, and especially Yorkshire, Yorkshire folks. They, they were bleak days back then when we were kids, weren't they? You know, and I used to uh, like Les Dawson. Anybody remember Les Dawson and his monologues? And uh, one of the monologues that I've written down here, I, I used to love this. He said, we were so poor. We did live in a semi, but it was one of those semi-condemned where you wiped your feet going out. (laughs) 
He said there were so many wet nappies around our fire guard. We used to have a rainbow in the lobby. <laughs> and we used to have air conditioning until my mother shot the bat. <laughs> and it goes on and on and on. We were so poor. We couldn't afford central heating. So my dad used to suck an extra strong mint and we'd sit around his mouth. <laughs> Stupid things like that. But anyway, when I were a lad, we were a very close family, five kids. And mum and dad worked really, really hard. Uh, they worked many hours uh, for little money. So we were relatively poor in those days compared to our friends and circle of friends. And it brings its own problems. And uh, um, life always begins at a, a young age, doesn't it? <laughs> and it starts to affect you. And uh, little bits of inferiorities um, just began to creep in as a youngster. We did live in a council house. We were thankful for that. But um, the fact that we got family credit or family allowances, it was called then, and we had no named clothes or designer clothes. Most of the clothes we got were from the rich family up the road, friends of my mum. Always hand-down clothes. Uh, I resorted back to those. I mean, this is a lovely Ted Baker jacket, isn't it? <laughs> Five quid Sue Rider. <laughs> so I don't mind hand-you-down clothes, but back then, it began, just little bits of inferiority crept in, and uh, I was talking to the first service, some of the more seniors, they remember what 50 bob was. Anybody remember what 50 bob was? And my dad used to give my mum 50 bob. It's about £2.50 to go out and buy five pairs of shoes for his kids. And they weren't shoes, they were those plastic sandals. Does anybody remember those? We used to go to school in some of you, yeah, plastic sandals. And they, they were a bit embarrassing, those things. Christmas time came, and we got all the cheap toys. Uh, we took it in turns as children, We took it in turns as children to get bikes, but usually those second-hand bikes are bikes that my dad had repainted. And so it was embarrassing going to school, and, and some of the more well-to-do kids were showing off what they got for Christmas, and I was embarrassed with what we got for Christmas, but I know my mum and dad did the best that they could, so we were relatively poor. I was embarrassed about having a coal fire. It cost a fortune to have a coal fire now, but we were the last ones in all our circle of friends to get a gas fire. And I used to be embarrassed about that. It's weird, isn't it, what you get embarrassed about we had friends sleeping over, been five children, friends sleeping over on a weekend, and mum and dad fought like cat and dog. And I'm talking fisticuffs at times. I'm talking about throwing crockery. I'm talking about shouting at the top of their voice. And we were embarrassed upstairs with our friends, taking in turns to go down and ask mum and dad to be quiet. And just little bits of embarrassment like that began to affect lives. I think I'm reasonably good looking. A bit porky. But my mid-teens, I was covered in acne. And uh, for those of you who've got teenagers, and you know what that's like, and you stay in and you keep away from people, and you're so embarrassed, and you try every, <laughs> every sort of cream you can, the stuff I try to get to the spots. And that was quite an embarrassing. And then in my mid-teens, um, I began to drink regularly until drunk. I used to drink to get drunk. I used to go on pub crawls. I, I was addicted to nicotine. I started at 11, right up to 19, and I got to the point where I was smoking 40 a day, on a weekend. I was foul-mouthed. The F word was the every other word for me. I was the one that told the smutty jokes. I was sexually immoral. I developed a very severe gambling addiction. My dad was a gambler and it sort of just caught on to me, but with superstition. We were invited some years ago to the Esther Hansen show. I'll tell you about that in some future date. Uh, because of the gambling um, and the way we came off gambling, which was amazing, but I was addicted to gaming machines and cards and darts and dominoes and horses and greyhounds. And we were just getting a, a liking for casinos. My parents got divorced. That hurt at times. 
relational breakdown. I was in trouble with the police for stealing. I was on probation for six months. My character was getting worse. The company that I was keeping was bad company. And those lifestyle choices at a, at a very significant time in my life meant that I failed all my O-levels, except when I took seven O-levels. I went fortunate enough to go to All Boys Grammar School in Bradford, but because of the heavy drinking and heavy smoking and the lifestyle, I just failed all my exams. That brought more disappointment to my family, to my friends. I was greedy. I was trying to win money off friends instead of being a friend. This was the reality of my life, not unlike many people today. And obviously, as I look out on some of you, I realise that you will have faced far more and endured far more serious things than me. But this was my life. Life had formed me with inferiorities and embarrassments and hurts and failures and emptiness. There were times I laid on my bed after being drunk, just laid on my bed, the head spinning, thinking I just feel so empty in life. And the guilt that accompanied that, because of what I'd allowed my life to become, I didn't like this, but I didn't know what to do. Nobody else modelled anything different to me. I didn't know anything else. This was me. And people, and I did, and some people try to straighten their life out. They don't like what they see or what life has done to them. But it has done it to them. And they try to change a bit of willpower. They try to straighten their life out bit by bit. See a psychologist, a psychiatrist. Maybe even start building some religious practices into your life to try and get things a little bit better. But you can't, you see. And I didn't even try. I didn't try to change. I just accepted my lot. I left school... Um, and I began to work at a winery in Leeds. Anybody remember Mother's Black Beer? Or Old England Wines, Leeds 13, Workley. And, uh, anyway, I worked there for a few weeks. <laughs> You'll never guess. Because I'd stayed on at school and got another four O-levels. Because I had five O-levels. Within weeks, they put me in charge. I was charged under the filter room. This massive winery. <laughs> Big mistake. I'm not saying anything really bad happened. On one occasion, I lost a few hundred gallons of grape juice. We don't even know where it went. <laughs> there were massive vats outside that held 75,000 gallons of grape juice. My job was to pump it inside, get it into relevant tanks inside, um, add the water, add the colouring, add all sorts of horrible additives, and then the alcohol man would come and put the alcohol in. And then I would stay on overtime for hours and hours, pressing buttons, air blowers would circulate the whole of the mix and then I would set up filter machines to filter the wine through before it got to the bottling line <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was my job to use my eyes just to check the clarity of the wine I used my mouth more than I used my eyes <laughs> and um, I'm not exaggerating I almost became a wino I drank so much wine on overtime and uh, how major things didn't happen I don't know but Actually, it was there at the winery that I first met Karen, my wife, girlfriend, and my romance began at the winery. A year later, I joined the Royal Navy, and I did three months' basic training there. I wanted to end the Royal Navy and thought it would be my career, but I loved the discipline. I loved learning how to iron clothes properly. I loved all of that, but I did feel trapped. So I said to Karen, she was back up here in Leeds, I was down in Portsmouth, and I said, any jobs going? She sent me the evening post, job vacancies, and they wanted postmen at Wellington Street Post Office in Leeds. And so I applied and I moved from Royal Navy to Royal Mail. 
I was only a few weeks in. I was sent out then to Putsy where I lived and I used to do my rounds at Putsy but they always wanted overtime in Leeds and so I signed up for five nights overtime. I used to, I used to earn two and a half times the regular wage because of the overtime. But on a Monday night I sat rows and rows of postmen and postwomen sorting letters into pigeon boxes like this and a guy came and sat next to me. He was called Graham. We began to talk and he began to share his faith with me. He was very honest about his faith. He was honest about his failures. He'd attempted suicide twice, cut his wrists and so on. But he, his story was interesting. His story of faith was more interesting. It, it began to grab me. Um, strangely enough, he started with the Bible at Armageddon. At the end stuff. And he worked all the way back to the cross about what Jesus had done for us. I thought that was quite strange. But it grabbed me and... And uh, on Monday, uh, I talked to him all night, and I hunted him out on Tuesday, and I talked to him all night. Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, I talked to him all night. He just began to share things. He would write Bible verses that I could take home the next day and share with Karen. I remember during that week being on a post round and just looking over the tops of roofs, and I could see out into the countryside, and, and I began to imagine places like Galilee and uh, places where Jesus was, and all, the miracles that he did, and the lives that he changed, and and I began to weep quite gently, on, just stood on my own thinking, I wonder if it's too late for me. I wonder if I'm too far gone. I wonder if anything can change for me. I wonder if I can change. And I remember crying. It was a strange experience. And then Graham and his wife Maureen, after speaking to him for four solid nights, they invited us, me and my girlfriend Karen, to a Sunday evening gospel service at a large Pentecostal church in the centre of Leeds. And on that Sunday night, we agreed to go. And this foul-mouthed, immoral adulterer, this heavy drinker, heavy smoker, severely addicted gambler, walked into Bridge Street Church. And uh, I mentioned this morning, I always make mention of it, I don't think it happens here, but I used, to, I used to think jolly church folks always filling up from the back. They do, all the churches I've been to, they all fill up from the back, don't they, so they can be quick away, or first to tea and coffee and cake. Or to get out in case the sermon's a bit too near the mark. <laughs> so I used to think. But they filled up all the time at Bridge Street. And there was only the front row back. And this rough diamond 19-year-old and his girlfriend had to be escorted down to the front seat. And it was a high pulpit. So we cricked our neck all through the service. <laughs> Jolly church folks. It was strange, but people were happy. I knew they were happy. I knew, I sensed a genuineness about them. They sang enthusiastically and they sang loud. It wasn't, they, they were singing out, they were going for it. Does anybody remember the Muppet Show? Anybody? They had a good run at primetime TV for five years and I used to watch it. It was hilarious, the Muppet Show. And I'm sat there and, in church and kind of enjoying it but a bit strange, uh, a bit nervous and uh, the vestry door opened and out came these grey-haired elders and I just thought, it's just like the Muppets, is this? <laughs> it's like Statler and Waldorf, the two old guys that used to sit in the balcony criticising. I think there's more chance of the grey hairs in the congregation criticising now, I don't know. I'll leave that with you. The preacher, who was the preacher that night? A much younger Pastor John Lancaster. He was preaching that night and he shared the gospel message and he shared it with clarity and he shared it with passion. And when he'd finished speaking... This rough diamond 19-year-old was crying his eyes out on the front row. I was sobbing and sobbing and slobbering uncontrollably. I'm quite posh now. I carry a handkerchief with me. <laughs> but in those days, I didn't. And at the end of this, 
I was wiping my nose on my sleeves. I remember it well. I'd been looking for the real thing you see in life. And uh, all I found were vices that didn't give me what I was looking for. Can I tell you, by the end of that service, three things hit me very strong. Simultaneously, the first thing was that Jesus was real. Nobody had to convince me. I sensed the realness of this person, Jesus. Not just a historical figure or or some dead saviour from years and years ago. I sensed that this person, Jesus, was real. The second thing that hit me simultaneously was that he actually had died for me, Dave Green. That when he hung on the cross, bearing the sins of the world, he was bearing my sins, he was was bearing this. And I think that's what broke me. That's That's what started the flow of tears. And the third thing was that he was genuinely interested in me and he wanted to come into my life. And those three things hit me. And from that moment on, guys, I can tell you, it felt as though everything changed because it had changed. I'd come alive to God. I didn't know how to express it. I didn't understand most things, but I'd come alive to God inside. The light had come on. I'd been saved. I'd been what the Bible calls born again. I was a different man from that night on. What had happened, you see, I gave him that night, well, he drew me. I used to go around telling everybody straight, I found God, I found God. I didn't know how to express it. I found God. I told my family, I found God. told all my workmates at the post, I found God. Fishing chip shop every day I went into. (laughs) That's where it all started. I just said to a full fishing chip, I found God. That made everybody go quiet, but he just didn't know what to say. I was so excited. But the fact is, he'd found me. He'd found me. And I'd given him that night an empty, hurting, addicted, immoral, guilty lifestyle. And Jesus didn't just try to straighten it out then, bit by bit over these next three or four decades. He didn't do that. He took the life that I surrendered to him. And he threw it away. The Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, or a big part of the New Testament, He had an experience of Jesus. He wasn't expecting it, but Jesus appeared to him when he was trying to persecute Christians on a road to a place called Damascus and he encountered Jesus, the real Jesus. And it changed his life. And and he wrote in one of his letters what that was like. And he was writing what had happened in my life and has happened in millions of people's lives down through the generations and down through the nations. This is what he said. If anyone is in Christ, or if anyone becomes a Christian, he is a new creation. The old has gone, and the new has come. (laughs) And the new life is a full life. And if it's real in your life, if your repentance is genuine, and if the love and forgiveness of Jesus truly has come into your heart, and if you've really become the new creation that God wants all men and women to become, God's word says your life will change. The fruit of your life will be different to what it's been before. Your life will show it and your life will prove it. And I knew it was real. Inwardly, I began to see things differently. I began to feel things differently. On my post rounds, I used to look out into the uh, countryside and I began to see God's creation. I I, I used to marvel at 
clouds and trees and leaves and cows. And I just began to appreciate the things that God had done and who he was. I felt so clean on the inside. And I knew I wasn't kidding myself. I absolutely felt clean inside and I was so hungry. I had an insatiable appetite to know about this new life. You see, on that very night when John Lancaster preached and I responded to the gospel, Jesus came into my life and he brought power into my life. Power to say no to destructive ways of life. The only ways that I knew. And power to say yes to the life-giving and life-enriching, fruitful ways of life. Without exaggeration, I want to tell you, my foul mouth was scrubbed that night. The effing stopped, the swearing stopped, the smutty joke-telling stopped. Absolutely was broken that night. My casual sex stopped. My severe gambling addiction with superstition was absolutely broken that night. Drinking... Drinking till drunkenness stopped that night. They fell off me like old rags. I struggled a little bit with nicotine for a few months. Uh, it got so much into my system over nine years. Uh, but finally, that was powerfully broken by Jesus as well. There's so much I can tell you, so much you'll find out about me over these next few years, God willing, about the full life and the journey that me and Karen have been on since that night. And uh, must have another drink. <laughs> The songwriter in the Bible, Psalm 34, says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Jesus taught, I'm coming to an end now, Jesus taught the very real presence of evil in the world. Evil personalities, not human beings. Principalities and powers that are literally hell-bent on ruining your life. He likened these evil personalities to a thief that have come to steal and kill and destroy your life, to spoil your character, to make you fail, to disappoint you, to discourage you, to depress you, to addict you to so many things, to trap you, to, be, to well, just to ruin your life like my life was ruined the first two decades of my life. And worst of all, these principalities and powers are trying to hide the truth about God from you. Listen to the words of Jesus. The thief has come to steal and to kill and destroy but I have come that you might have life and have life to the full like many here today I've been enjoying God's fullness from that Sunday evening when Jesus saved me you've heard three stories today the man I called Skinny Jim what an amazing story that was God drew him to Jesus through his sickness and through faithful friends and he went away from encountering Jesus cleansed and healed physically and spiritually, what a fantastic day for him and his family. Patience shared her story. How she tried to deny even God's existence because of the horrible things that have been happening to her life. Like they happen to all of our lives. But God sought her and drew her to Jesus. And so she's now hungry to flourish in a new relationship with the Lord. And you've heard my story as well this morning. I wasn't interested in anything to do with God. But within less than seven days... I was changed from the inside out forever. It might well be this morning that you're here and God is drawing you to Jesus in some way, shape or form. You just sense something happening inside of you. He may be drawing you right now to open up your life to him. To, to have that great exchange that many of us have had where he'll take the old life and give you a new life. His invitation isn't just to clean your life up a little bit. To add a little bit of religion to your life. 
His invitation isn't to build some religious framework that you can live within and hope to feel better. His invitation to you is to turn away from everything you know to be wrong, everything that he'll show you is not good for your life, to receive the forgiveness that he offers in Jesus and to enter into a loving relationship with him. Can I ask you, because we do in churches like this, we just ask people to bow. It just creates a moment of privacy for you. This is what happened to me on that night at Bridge Street. So could I just ask heads to be bowed? All I want to do now is just to repeat those five lines of scripture, five lines of truth that I've already quoted. And it might be just right now you sense God drawing you to Jesus. Might be your first time in church or you've, you've been coming years, but you just know he's drawing you to Jesus to fully commit your life to him. Jesus said that he came to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus said no one comes to him unless God the Father draws him. If anyone becomes a Christian, he becomes a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. Jesus said the thief comes to steal, to kill and destroy things in your life. But he has come that you might have life and have it to the full. And finally, and this is what we need to respond to, taste and see that the Lord is good. Whilst heads are bowed, the ushers are primed right now to come down the aisles and just to put a booklet in your hand if you are sensing that God the Father is drawing you to Jesus. And if you are, will you just raise your hand nice and high so the, the ushers can put a book in your hand. You can begin to explore faith more, this journey. Thank you, there's a few hands going up. Please put your hand nice and high. It's a very sacred moment for you, a very private moment for you as well. Between you and the Lord and he's seen the response in your heart. You might like to talk with the person that's brought you or somebody at the welcome desk or myself or Pastor Andy. Someone on the front row here, thank you. And just one last chance, just to put your hand up nice and high so we can put a booklet into your hand. Thank you. Thank you, another hand there. The musicians are going to come back now. We're going to sing a final song. We're going to sing from changed hearts and hearts that love God and hearts that just love this journey with the Lord Jesus.